Um, if we haven't met yet, my name's Michael, and I'm one of the pastors of Neighborhood Church, and we live up in Ocala. We're serving the church up there. And we also have been working through Jonah together. Um, and so I'm going to continue, pick up a little bit of where Pastor Orrin has left off. Um, but I wonder if it feels this way to you. It has felt like this to me, that it used to be that we knew who the good guys were and who the bad guys were. It seems like we all we had an idea of like who our enemy was. Like like uh, when I think about the nation at war in World War II, like it was really clear like what was who was good and who was bad. Or we think about the Cold War, like we knew who we were afraid of. And it seems like more and more like the more doubt we have over like what we're afraid of, the more like the fear increases, and we're just not sure like who actually is the enemy here. Um, we even will see this in our entertainment where um, a director will oftentimes try to make you feel sympathy or compassion for the guy who is clearly supposed to be the bad guy in the film. And you, you think he's making bad choices, but you also like understand, it makes sense to you why he's making the choices that he's making. And um, it's just, it's confusing. Who are, we, who are we supposed to be afraid of? Who are we supposed to be at, at odds with? Who are we supposed to be... Um, you know, how is the world even supposed to work at all? And it seems like those ideas are so big, they're so confusing. I'm just like, I'm just a little, I'm just one little person here in Lakeland, Florida, um, trying to live my life. Like, what can I do on a global scale? Like, we have at our fingertips and before our eyeballs news from across the globe and, and suffering on a scale that before we never had to sort out. And so it can feel like, you know, maybe, maybe the best thing to do is just kind of put some blinders on to hunker down and let the world sort themselves out. Like, like, just wait for the world to change. Like, I'll do my part here, but let the rest of it, like, just, just let the rest of it sort itself out. Um, that's typically uh, how I feel. I, I take a lot of solace from the passage uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 where he says, uh, basically, like, keep your head down, mind your business, and, and live for Jesus, and like let everything else, in. and I'm like, yeah, that's, I want to do that. I, wanna, I want to live at peace with all people, I want to mind my own business, and I want to walk with God, and uh, I tend to want to absolutize that verse, and say like, this, this is my life verse, that's what I'm going to be about, I'm going to be all about minding my own business, and staying out of yours, um, and yet, we have a call um, that is held with intention of that. And so as we've, as we've gone through and as we've explored, I'm just going to knock things over. This is going to be fun. Um, yeah, so hopefully that's, that's um, yeah, I don't know. I need prayer. I suspect that perhaps you do too. So let's pause at this point. And uh, we'll pray together. And our habit in Ocala is to pray together uh, the disciples' prayer. And I don't think this is working. Down arrow? Where am I supposed to point this, Luke? Back there? Got it. Cool. Awesome. Let's pray together the, the, the disciples' prayer. This isn't like a magic formula. It's not a magic spell or anything. Um, but Jesus, when asked, left his disciples a model to pray by. And the attitudes that are contained in these, in these brief words that are going to be familiar to us 
are the attitudes that should define a follower of Jesus. So if you would pause and pray together with me, um, you can pray out loud. I'm going to be praying out of the ESV, so that's why I put the words up, because it's different from what you probably learned growing up in the KJV. Um, so uh, if you pray together with me, you can pray out loud if you'd like to. Otherwise, just bow your hearts and let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. And it occurred to me as I walked in this morning that the Bible that I carry with me all the time is, is a Christian standard Bible translation. And so I typically use the English standard version. Um, but whatever you've got in English is probably going to be helpful to you this morning, and it's going to be helpful for you as, you, uh, as we go through the text. So I'd encourage you to open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. It's on page 526 in my Bible. I don't know if that's helpful. Um, but let's look at Jonah chapter 3, uh, just the first couple of verses here. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh, and preach the message that I tell you. Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now, Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. And Jonah set out the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. Let's pause there. Let's pause there. And we'll talk about what's, what's happened here. Did you notice, um, if you've kind of been looking at this book over the last couple of weeks, did you notice that it's almost like the whole story restarts again? It, almost verbatim, the, the opening lines of chapter 3 are the opening lines of chapter 1. We have a, a reset. We have a restart. The word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh, when we, see, um, when we see Lord in all caps in our English translations, it's an indication that we're talking about the personal name of the God of the Bible. So the word of Yahweh came to Jonah a second time, and he said, hey, go up and go to that great city Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. And then this time Jonah got up and he went. Like that's a little bit different from what happened. Like he got up last time and he got going, but it was not in the direction um, that he was supposed to be headed. And Nineveh is a great city. It was a three-day walk. And you'll hear critical scholars say, like, oh, there's no way that Nineveh was ever that big, like that it would take three days to walk. And I'm like, did you read the first two chapters of this book? Jonah did not want to be there. And so it might have taken him three days to walk to the place. And he's like, I don't really want to go. Like, I guess I'm here now. But like, I like Let's just not assume that Jonah's cooperating on any level whatsoever, except that he made his way to the city, and now he's dragging himself through it, and he's preaching the message that God, that Yahweh gave to him. And what is the message? In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. Now, to us, it's like, okay, like, all right, I don't, I'm not, I'm not in Nineveh. I've never met an Assyrian. Like, none of this stuff means anything to me. But for the Assyrians, like, they, were, uh, they had a really, really terrible reputation, um, and their, their terrible reputation was well-earned. 
um, the kind of G-rated, not even G-rated, but the PG-rated version of like fun for them is like sticking your living body up on a pole and just watching you slide down for fun. And that's kind of how they would decorate their city. You did not want to be on the business end of an invading Assyrian army because torture and human sacrifice were just kind of par for the course for these people. So he walks into the city and says, hey, your city is going to be destroyed in 40 days. Puts a time limit on it, which is fascinating to me. Um, but, and he says, hey, your, 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 your city is going to be destroyed. It doesn't give any details. Like, are we talking an earthquake? Are we talking an, a different army that's going to invade? He just says, hey, your city is going to burn in 40 days. All right? And apparently... Uh, Apparently, that's what Yahweh told him to say, because Yahweh says, I want you to go tell this message, and that's the message. The message is, your city's going to burn. Like, in 40 days, a month and a half, Lakeland's going to burn. Okay, so if I say Lakeland, do we put that into a little bit of a different context? Like, what are the implications of Lakeland burning next month for you? Like, gas prices are going to look like pretty moderate as part of problems if the whole city's on fire, right? Okay? So, uh, like, these people are like, oh, okay, like, that's, that's the message. That's the message that they're hearing, and Jonah's kind of walking through and kind of proclaiming. But we, that's a summary recap, sorry. Um, but here in chapter 3, I ask the question, or I look at this restart, and I wonder for myself, where I prefer to start my story, if I'm going to tell it. Because if I was Jonah recounting the story and, and communicating it to people, like, I don't know that I would necessarily have mentioned chapters one and two. Particularly if I get a restart in chapter three, like, hey, I went, and, and, and I'm a preacher, like, that's, that's my job. And so I went to the city and I preached and, and things happened. And like, that's probably just where I'd start to tell my story. And yet, it's fascinating to me that God never starts our story where we would prefer to start to tell it. Have you ever noticed that when God wants to tell the story of a great man, he starts with his mom? Which is unique across, like, ancient documents. If you want to learn about the foundations of, like, David's dynasty, the way that story starts is with Ruth. Right? If you want to know about Samuel, this, this prophet, in, the, in a really, really torn up time, we talk about Hannah first. If you want to learn, like, if you want to come to Jesus and, like, learn about his story, you have to come to grips with Mary. Like, God starts to tell our story before we're ready to begin to tell it. And so where do we prefer to begin to tell our story, and how might God's perspective on our story actually be different. This is a side note, not a, not a huge deal, but it's something that came to mind as I was going through this. Let's, let's continue reading because I know you want to know what happens next. In verse 5, then the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. And when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne and took off his royal robe and put on sackcloth and sat in ashes. Then he issued a decree in Nineveh by order of the king and his nobles. No person or animal, herd or flock is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. 
Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil way and from his wrongdoing. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways, so God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. So Jonah drags his lazy butt into Nineveh and says a couple of words, and then immediately, like, the whole city is, is in an uproar. Like, what do you mean the city is going to burn? Which is a good question. But they have an appropriate response to this divine revelation that our city is going to be, and they, and they begin to repent. They stop whatever it is they're doing that they think might be offensive to God, and they begin to, to weep and mourn and grieve over their sin. They put sackcloth and ashes, and they, like, this is, this is the most extreme case of, of, of repentance that you've ever seen because they even tell their cows that their cows are going to repent too. Like, you guys are going to fast with us. And I'm sure the cows were pretty upset by that. Like, I don't want to frustrate my goats, but like, that's, that's the degree that they were willing to go to to, to articulate um, their seriousness about this message. They understood it. Um, whereas Jonah, who fears the Lord, like, did the exact opposite of what he wanted them to do. This is an extreme fast, but, but, but notice, it's, it's God. Like, in all of the language, Yahweh, the Lord, is not the one who's mentioned. They are, they are talking about God. It's not clear that they even understand that it's the God of Israel who's sending this judgment. And I don't know that Jonah voluntarily gave them any extra information about what was going on. The message was simple, and the repentance was huge. And maybe there's not even clarity about which God it was that was active in what was going on here. (laughs) But look at verse 9. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. Who knows? God, God does what God wants. And we're, we're doing the best that we can, but, but maybe, perhaps, perhaps he'll relent of this disaster. Perhaps we can go on living our lives uninterrupted by this big destruction that's been foretold. Now, if you have been following Jesus for a while, um, you know that as, as you come to him, and as you repent, and as you uh, lay aside your sin, you begin to follow him, like he guarantees that you have forgiveness. Like we have a confidence in our salvation that really is unique amongst any kind of world religion model. But like we have a guarantee. These guys didn't have a guarantee. They had a maybe. And as I was having a conversation with Pastor Oren last night, he observed me, observed something that I had not quite yet observed, until he pointed it out, and he just asked the question, would we make a significant change in our lives without a guarantee? Like, would we repent and turn on the off chance that maybe God could forgive us? Would we change how we were living our life on the off chance that that God might show us grace, maybe, in his mercy? 
Like I'm, I'm, I'm down for the sealed deal. I, I want Jesus' blood on my contract. I want assurance that all that's kept up in heaven and stored for me. And now I will go live my life in gratitude for that salvation. But like a maybe? I don't know. I think I'd probably just keep doing me. Would we make a significant change without a guarantee? Or could we perhaps bank our lives on God's mercy? The story reinforces that God's compassion is tirelessly extended to those most hostile to him. God's compassion is tirelessly extended to those who are most hostile to him. The Assyrians aren't looking for anything at all. And yet God still makes sure that this message comes and is declared with some clarity, not seemingly a ton of enthusiasm, but the message got delivered. God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways. So God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. Now, if you're writing a biography about the life of a preacher, and he goes and preaches a half-hearted message, and the whole city turns upside down and begins to repent, like, you, you are going to bet, like, that's going to be the highlight of their life. Like, that's the only, like, I, that's what I want to do. Like, I want to see cities turn to Jesus. Like, you hear preachers all across the country say, yeah, we're going to win this city for Christ. And if that were to actually happen, you know, you'd never hear the end of it. They'd be at every conference speaking all the time. And yet, that's not what happens. Let's look at chapter four, which is the most overlooked chapter of this book, and yet contains <laughs> the greatest challenge. Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord, Please, Lord, isn't this what I thought while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord asked, is it right for you to be angry? We have no natural desire for God's justice. Like the, the thing that we want, the thing that we ask for from, from a young, young age is for things to be fair, right? But we, and we have a desire for fairness, but we have no like natural desire for God's justice. And Jonah, this prophet who fears Yahweh, now looks Yahweh in the eye and says, just kill me. Like, I don't, want to, I don't want to be an agent of your mercy to these people. I don't, I don't want to be a part of the story that you're telling, that you, would, that you would extend a kindness to these wicked people. Like, I don't, I, don't want to, I don't want to do it. I didn't want to do it before. I knew that's what you were up to, and that's why I ran the other direction. And you dragged me here anyway. And I didn't even do a good job preaching. And you, and you still did it. You did it. God's compassion is tirelessly extended to those who are hostile to him. God's heart is to warn those 
who are far from him of their great danger. And Jonah's cycle of cynicism gets reset here. We saw in chapter 1, like, I'd rather die than obey. I'd rather die than go to those people. Like, like that's my solution. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to commit suicide, like, sailor-assisted suicide, rather than go and do the thing that, that Yahweh, creator of the heavens and the earth and the sea, has commanded me to do. I'd rather die. And here he says it again. Isn't this what I said was going to happen? Just, just kill me now. I don't, I don't want to be a part of it. And he goes and sits on top of the, well, that's what we're going to read next. Let's read the next little bit here. Well, hold on. Let's not, real quick, because this is actually an important question. There are things about, there are things about God that we really, really struggle to understand. And it's a reminder to me that I don't follow rules. I follow a person. The book points us to our creator, and it is actually a relationship with him that our faith is lived out by. If it were rules, I could do it, maybe, on a good day. But if we're interacting with a personal being, then there are going to be components of his being that rubs up against us. Here's the thing. If you're married, you know this. You didn't marry the person that you married the day that you married him. You married the person this morning that you woke up next to. And you didn't know who that person was when you started. Like, it's a, it's a relationship. And, and I, like, if you, if you, like, if, if I could fit it all into a box and make it, like, stagnant, then maybe I could get my head around it. But, like, do we follow, like, following God is having to deal with his personal, the way that he interacts with the world in ways that make us uncomfortable. And Jonah would rather die than see Yahweh deliver, city, deliver this city from an earthly catastrophe. Verse 5, Jonah left the city and found a place east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew over Jonah and provided shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. <laughs> Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. And when dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, and it withered. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted, and he wanted to die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. Then, jo then God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it is right, he replied. I'm angry enough to die. So the Lord said, you cared about the plan, which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in the night and perished in the night. But may I not care more, or may I not care about that great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish their right hand from their left, as well as many animals? So it's comic, right? Jonah goes up and sits outside the city and waits for it to burn, which God just said, I'm not going to do. And he's like, yeah, but you ought to. 
and he builds himself a little, a little tent of some kind, but apparently it wasn't very good because God made a plant grow up over top of him. He was super thankful for the plant. It's like AC. Cool. He was really excited about that. And then God appointed a worm to eat the plant. The plant died. And then God turned the heater on and sent a, a wind to make it even hotter than it was. And, and like when you open your, and like when you open your car door uh, in August in Florida, and like, God, I'd rather die than be here. Right? It's the same, the same kind of principle. Like God, just kill me. Do you do right to be angry for the plant? Like, what did you do for that? You didn't even really ask for it, did you? You were super thankful, but you didn't ask. And I just gave it to you. I just, I just showed you, just showed you an earthly kindness. I turned the AC on for a minute, and now it's gone. And you want to die again? Notice in this story that everything, everything, everything in the story obeys Yahweh's command except for Jonah. We got, we got a sea, or we got the wind in the sea. Uh, we've got the sailors who were pagans to start with. We got a fish that came up out of nowhere. Uh, we've got uh, we've got Nineveh that responds appropriately. We've got a plant, we've got a worm, and then we got another wind. We got winds on both sides of the story. Like, it's great. But everything in the story obeys God's command except for Jonah. And Jonah is not only, like, disobeying, like, he is at war with God's command, even after he's already fulfilled the thing that he came to do. He's looking at a group of people and saying, y'all don't even deserve to, like, be alive in two months. And I don't know that I feel that way about anybody in particular. But there's something that that heart attitude that tastes like it's been in my mouth before. Do you know what I mean? Be wary of the attitude, like I'd rather die because I know where I'm going and just let everybody else sort their stuff out. This, this chapter is so disturbing. You've never read it in a children's book. Um, and, and even like Islam, um, like, like uh, Muslims, they have a lot of respect for Jonah, which I don't super understand. But when they retell his story, they actually flip these chapters. They say Jonah went up to watch the city be destroyed, and then he preached after that. And I'm like, you missed the whole point of the book. Like The thing is that Jonah never changed. Everything else in the book changed except for Jonah. And Jonah's dead set on being opposed to God. And, and his desire is for God's uh, wrath to be poured out on people that didn't deserve it and, and doesn't realize that as God's compassion is tirely extend, tirelessly extended to those most hostile to him, he himself is the one most hostile to God. And such were some of you. Therefore, the grace of God go I. But this story's messed with me uh, in a way that it hasn't before, and I've spent time with it over over the last you know decades. 
I'm real quick as a believer to jump into like salvation issues and we're talking about eternal destinies. And so when I read repentance in the Old Testament, I'm like, oh, cool, people are getting saved. But like, that's not, that's not the message. Um, the message is the city is not going to burn in two months and then God delivers them from a wartime famine. Temporarily. A hundred years later, God's going to send another prophet named Nahum. And if you check that book out sometime, you're going to have to look in your index to find it. It's in there, though. It's a prophet called Nahum. And, and he also preaches to Nineveh and says, God's going to burn it down. And then he does. So a hundred years later, the city's going to burn either way. So what, what, what did Jonah actually accomplish? Why was God so dead set on getting this dude who, like, the last thing on earth he wanted to do was to go and do this. And they went and did it. And what did he deliver him from? A temporary earthly crisis? Like that, that, like I don't, there's something that doesn't set right with me. Like I, I, I am wrestling with it. I went, um, went for a walk and I was praying for our neighborhood this week. And as I was walking and praying and walking and praying, uh, you know how sometimes like, you'll see a thing and it'll, remember a th- it'll strike a thought. And you're like, oh, I never thought that before. Like, I'll do that. So I was walking and I see a nail in the road. And I was like, oh, man. God, like, just deliver people from like, those small inconveniences of their day. Like a flat tire could really ruin somebody's day. And it might be like, super expensive to like, be able to, to, like, to, to replace a tire. Like, if you had a flat tire and you didn't have the extra money, like, that could be like, God, would you deliver people? From those in, like, would you would you be grace and kindness to these people that like are going to make their week go better? And I don't know how you're going to do it and also get the credit for it, but God, would you do that? And I kept walking, and I saw a screw, and it reminded me again. And kept walking, and I saw another nail. I walked for an hour, I found two nails and two screws. Like, man, God, like you really must like you really must want me to pray for like this thing. Or maybe God put me on the street to pick the nails up. Jonah super wanted to be a, uh, a guerrilla strike. And I think we have had this attitude in the past of like, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna parachute in, I'm gonna say the thing, and then I'm out. I'm out. And yet our call our call comes from Jesus. As you're going, make disciples of me. You do things my way. And what is Jesus' method? It's incarnation. Jesus didn't <laughs> preach from the city from across the mountaintop and like, hey, you guys figure it out. Like, you should repent. Jesus moved into town. And, and, if, and if the city burns, like, he's there with them. And if they suffer, he also suffers. And that's, that's Jesus' model of ministry. And that's our call. As you're looking, as we're looking at the housing market, what are the places that you would not live? And who's there? And can we say that we care about them and we want to introduce them to Jesus? We want to invite them to follow Jesus if we're not even willing to live next door to them.
will we invest ourselves more than just our prayers, but actually picking up the nails in the street? Will we invest ourselves to the degree that it costs us in those that God cares for? Willingly, with a joyful heart. Because it's not, I can't do that. I can't fabricate that. But when I look to Jesus, that's exactly what he did. Let's pray together. Almighty God, you know we need you. We have, we have nowhere to go but to you. And as we see um, the darkness in Jonah's heart, as, as we recognize the scent of that darkness in our own heart, Lord, would you draw us into your goodness? You did not choose death as an escape from doing what you were called to do. You chose death as the call that you might win people to yourself. That's a love I don't quite understand yet. And yet you invited us in. Would you give us the faith to respond to you this morning? Would you give us the faith to invest ourselves in those that you care about? Wherever we may find them wherever our feet may find to go. It's in your name we pray.